part of the reason that I want you to turn to our passage this morning, which is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I think it fits well with what's going on in the life of your congregation, uh, your fellowship group, and I trust uh, will be an encouragement to you as well as something of a testimony uh, from us, what the Lord is doing on the, uh, across the pond, as we say, on the other side of the Atlantic and uh, in our church and a network of churches and some lessons we've learned. And uh, by the way, some of this was borrowed from, I think, basically across the hall and adapted uh, from Brad Clausen. My son and now daughter-in-law were, are in uh, commissioned. And uh, a few months back, they said, Dad, you have got to hear. I mean, we're just going through First Thessalonians and Brad's message is incredibly relevant to why we meet in person and hits that you've taken, Dad, and the price we paid as a church, and the stand that Grace Elders and our leaders and our seminary and network of churches have taken about gathering even when it's illegal, and uh, meeting face-to-face, and not enforcing state-mandated protocols and so forth. And uh, my, my son and daughter-in-law said, you've got to hear Brad's message from First Thessalonians. It's amazing. And he hardly said anything about the actual issues of masks or protocols. He just expounded the next few verses. And so uh, I adapted that for our flock in South Africa and, uh, and developed it in some further ways. And so uh, I, I trust you'll be encouraged as well if you haven't already uh, heard it or if you're like my kids and it's the fifth time. You'll be even more blessed and uh, encouraged from this uh, passage. We now as a church have this year so far, since January, had to go underground five times uh, because of state pressure and police disruptions. They've showed up three different times at our worship services. The first time during the worship team, it was great. We have Denver. He's a colored South African, very gifted musician and uh, former radio TV personality in the country. And the Lord saved him. He uh, was one of the first multiracial marriages, by the way, in the late 80s, early 90s, super controversial, uh, very uh, disruptive, and yet he and his wife in the Lord believe they should marry. And uh, he's colored, she's white, and they have a wonderful story. But anyway, Denver said to the police as they came in, he said, "Uh, hello, sir, how can we help you? They said, why are you meeting? Haven't you heard the latest regulations? And Denver said, well, um, if you want to talk to the elders, they'll be here in about 15 minutes. Or at 9 o'clock, you could come and arrest all, the whole church, if you'd like. (laughs) So Denver is a gutsy guy, and they they kind of uh, chuckled. And So then uh, myself and uh, Matt Florine, one of the missionaries here from Grace, who's been a great resource for our church and uh, has preached for me the last two Sundays while I'm here and teaching biblical counseling and equipping people. leaders for our church and other churches. But anyway, Matt and I uh, spoke to them, and they insisted that we disperse, and so we had to go underground that night. We had about 150 of our people said, we must meet today. Uh, enough's enough. This was uh, in January. And so we met on someone's farm discreetly. Uh, but it gets tricky, because you got to, how do you tell everyone? And some people want to come, and others don't. And some, it, some have new fears, and some have old fears, and, and so forth. And, um, but we saw a real unity. We, every time we've met underground, five times now this year, we have communion because it just uh, it, it embodies why we need to meet together tangibly and how precious the unity of the body is. And so it's been a purifying time, just as Pastor John said two weeks ago when we were here on Sunday and the testimony and the monument or the, the plaque that you have up now here of the purifying and, uh, and uh, sanctifying and wonderful work the Lord has done through your church. Uh, through these difficult times. And we've seen that in our church as well. Uh, we've also seen uh, tons of new people coming. We've had like 50. We're only a church of about two or 250. Uh, before COVID, we'd maybe have 400 on a Sunday. Uh, we're definitely not back to that yet. Um, but we've had like 50 people come to membership class. 
So uh, do the percentages. It's been really encouraging at uh, those that are wanting to join, but there's others that haven't come back yet, and that's hard, isn't it? And, um, and so when we've met underground, that's what's happened, and we've had to do that because of police disruptions now uh, five times. Uh, they've, the other two times they showed up at church, they didn't stop us from meeting, thankfully. They just tried to intimidate, and we s- simply uh, explained to them the stand that we take and, uh, and the respect we have for them and that we're praying for them. But there is a trend, as you see around the world, of rising tyranny, rising government overreach, increasing disregard for freedom of religion, constitutional rights, and... Again, this is a passage that prepares us and our churches for why we gather and uh, why we meet and how we meet. I did a message for our people. These are both on our church's website. Not that you in a church like this need uh, anything further from me, but if you want to hear how it's applied in a missionary overseas setting, I did a sermon last year on why we gather, a theology of public worship. Theology of Corporate Worship, Why We Gather. That's on our Antioch Bible Church website. And then also, more um, uh, recently, as you might be aware, did an essay on when to disobey, a biblical theology of resistance for reluctant Protestants, and explaining the biblical spheres of God-ordained authority for the church, uh, for the family, and for the state, and how those relate to one another. And uh, a lost doctrine in the church today, uh, uh, an unused muscle that we've had to rediscover, haven't we, in the, the Christian church. And so those are available uh, online if you want to know more. I think Nathan is one of your pastors here as well, Nathan Busnitz. He did a Sunday in July seminar I highly recommend just last month, and I downloaded it a few uh, just a week or two ago on God versus government. I believe he's working on a book with James Coates. So uh, very encouraging and I'm thankful for the stand that you've taken as a church. It's galvanized us and I know churches around the world like ours uh, to, to stand for gathering and for meeting and uh, to, to really demonstrate what it means that Scripture is our final authority, not Caesar, not the culture, not uh, St. Fauci or whoever else, right? <laughs> but King Jesus and what King Jesus says as Lord and Head. And, uh, that's, and, and by the way, one other reason I uh, turned to this text and preached to, to our people a few months ago is that we knew the third wave was coming. And by the way, it came with a, with, uh, a vengeance in, um, when was that, honey? Uh, May, June. And uh, we, we're in the winter, right? Southern hemisphere, um, opposite as you. And the third wave of COVID has uh, hit us significantly uh, in, in many churches, and particularly our province in Johannesburg, Pretoria, the heart of the country, the Gauteng province. We, in our church, had numerous hospitalizations, three different people in ICU. We've had one funeral. We had a seminary student from a sister church in our Shepherd Seminary, 39 years old, dead, left a wife and two young children behind. We buried him. That was a gut-wrenching funeral. And so we've had to face these things, but we knew it was coming. We didn't know how hard it would be. But as we prepared as a church, we had to put a stake in the ground and say, we're still going to meet. This is why we're going to gather. This is why we believe it's still the right thing to do. And we can't be tossed to and fro by every latest wave and every latest uh, warning. None of these people got it from gathering on a Sunday. They got it because it's going around. And uh, some were more vulnerable than others. And we believe in focused protection, and we've tried to care for those who are more vulnerable. And uh, nothing I say today in any way uh, would, would discredit or would uh, minimize that. But we wanted to prepare our people. And in our case, we're not Grace Community. We're never online before COVID. We, didn't, we don't have John MacArthur. They're just stuck with me. Uh, uh, and so 
We were never online before COVID, and so we prepared our people for a good year in advance. We said, we're going to go offline. We're not going to stream. We see the adverse, harmful spiritual effects of not being together in person. So we prepared, we pushed it back, we pushed it back, and then we said, third wave is probably coming. We need to be together. If you need to be at home for a couple weeks, let us know. We'll love you. We'll visit you. You can download previous sermons, but don't think that's church. And we did it, and most of the people supported it. And it was passages like this that we turned to to help prepare us for why to resist. And that's my title for this morning in this uh, short message, is face-to-face against a disembodied Christianity. Face-to-face against a disembodied Christianity. You may know the story of the Thessalonian church. It's a wonderful one. If you don't, go to at some time to Acts 17, and you'll find it there. Years later, Paul now sits down, or probably just uh, months later, and writes to this newly planted church where he'd only spent a couple of weeks, and they are heavy on his heart. New converts are getting persecuted, and the leaders, Paul and company, are getting criticized, and they've been cut off from them. So he picks up pen and papyrus, and he gives one of the most tender and personal and intimate statements anywhere in all of his epistles. Someone has said, First Thessalonians is an ancient classic of friendship. And after the first two chapters, where Paul is mainly speaking of his ministry when he was present, now he talks about his ministry when he's absent. And as we come to the end of chapter 2, and probably the chapter break should be chapter 2, verse 16. And it's almost like a new chapter when you get to chapter 2, verse 17, where I'm going to begin and read in a moment. The center of the letter becomes the heart of the apostle in the heart of the epistle. He becomes intensely emotional here. His words seem to tremble, as one writer puts it. And he demonstrates for us the superiority of personal presence over all other forms of communication. About how God views physical togetherness of his people, face-to-face fellowship, and how Satan views it, and how he tries to stop it, and how we can be ready to fight against his schemes. These are urgent lessons, are they not, brothers and sisters? One more preliminary quote before I read, Uh, and I hope this will motivate you to join the Bible studies. What great timing. Uh, uh, These midweek Bible studies, this Sunday fellowship group, and to prioritize fellowship in an age of an anti-church virus and an uh, anti-church society that's increasingly post-Christian and more and more atheistic and secular. Uh, one of our, my fellow lecturers in, in our Shepherd Seminary in Johannesburg, I think is the finest South African expositor that we have. Pray the Lord keeps him there. There's a great pull for any who have wealth and means and opportunity to leave South Africa, uh, and all the more after these recent riots and uh, unrest. But David DeBrain, he's uh, blogged and written a number of books as well and writes online. He's a dear friend and fellow pastor on the, uh, across the city, other side of Johannesburg. He has a three-part blog called Disembodied Christianity. He says this, media ecologists have been telling us for years that media shape us not only by their content, but by their form. For decades, we've been consuming media on screens, laptops, cell phones, flat screens, tablets. It's our primary form of information, education, communication, entertainment. Screens have colonized us. And it appears that Christianity, at least in some parts of the world, has likewise been screenified. I'm sure this doesn't apply to Los Angeles, but let me keep reading. 
Simply, he says, the debate over the use or non-use of live streaming, Zoom, online communion, and so on, is only secondarily a, a debate about technology. Primarily, it's a debate over what a fully human Christianity is. What does it mean to be human? Why did God make us soul and body? The brain says, it's the Christian view of the body behind these debates. Do we need to be physically present together? Do we need to be physically present to eat together? Do we need to be physically in one another's presence to worship corporately or to be said to be assembling? And does virtual presence still constitute a true human presence? Did you see in the news, by the way, just in the last couple of weeks, Facebook, as of last month, Zuckerberg has jumped on the worship streaming bandwagon? Full steam, like never before. They've announced that they will be partnering with churches to permanently move their services online. New York Times says, quote, Facebook aims to become the virtual home for religious community. Hillsong Atlanta, church of thousands, says, together with Facebook, we're discovering what the future of the church could be. 33% of Americans say we go to church strictly online. America has just passed the point. The land of probably most of us here, the land of our birth, the land that we love and has so much global implication in missions. And the, just recently, church membership has, in the country of America has dropped below 50%, first time ever in U.S. history. Not even 50, only 47% membership of any local church. Fascinating the figures on what's being built as well in the last 18 years. A 300% drop in U.S. dollars spent on building churches. In contrast to the last 18 years, amusement, entertainment buildings, up 42%. It tells you where things are headed and how we need to be alert. Listen to Paul as he writes now, 1 Thessalonians 2, from verse 17 to verse, chapter 3, verse 10. Listen as I read. But we, brethren, having been bereft of you for a short while... In person, and by the way, the literal and the original, in face, not in spirit. We're all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan thwarted us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exultation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor should be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? as we night and day praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Father, we thank you for Cornerstone. We thank you for 
her leaders. We thank you for each brother and sister in the faith, and perhaps some here today that don't even know the Lord Jesus, the King and Head that we obey and follow and want, who, who compels us to be the church and to do church according to your law and your regulations in submission to your word and to take your gospel to the ends of the earth. Lord, we pray that you would save any who are lost here this morning. You would build up your people and make this an encouraging and useful message for the honor of your name and the purity of your bride. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. We're going to look at four reasons quite rapidly this morning Four reasons to fight for face-to-face fellowship. And we've had to fight for that, haven't we? More than we ever thought. Things we took for granted for most, uh, most of us for our lifetimes. Four reasons to fight for face-to-face fellowship. Against all of Satan's schemes and any other barriers, four reasons. And the first one we're going to camp on, and it's going to be not just expository, but a little bit topical or thematic in its application. So I'll prepare you now. I'm sure there's a few seminary students here, right? A little atypical, but I hope helpful. Four reasons to fight for face-to-face fellowship. First of all, and this, we'll major on this one, is because of a godly desire. That'll be in verse 17. And then just briefly, the last three will only be in closing. We fight for face-to-face fellowship against every satanic hindrance. We, we stand for it, not only because of a godly desire, which is for togetherness, right? But because of a satanic strategy, strategy to isolate us. Verse 18, we're going to see, because there's a satanic strategy we need to be aware of. Let's not be duped. The Christian church, by and large, has been fooled, hook, line, and sinker. (laughs) That The church is not essential. God's word says otherwise, right? And I know you know that. That's why you're here today. But could you explain it to others? How can you counsel and minister to others? And what about the next waves and the next attacks and the next pressures from statism or safetyism or Fauciism or whatever else it might be, right? Because of a godly desire, and then because of a satanic strategy, and then verses 19 and 20, we see because of a glorious reward. A glorious reward. And then chapter 3, verse 1 to 10, also just briefly in closing, we'll see the fourth reason to fight for face-to-face fellowship, because of an unbearable risk. A godly desire, a satanic strategy, a glorious reward, and an unbearable risk. Let's look first of all at verse 17, a godly desire this yearning for togetherness. Spurgeon says, Some Christians try to go to heaven alone or in solitude, but believers are not compared to bears or lions or other animals that wander alone. Those who belong to Christ are sheep. In this respect, they love to get together. Sheep go in flocks. And so do God's people. So the critics are saying, Ah, Paul, you're just passing through. You don't really care for us. And he's just said in verses 15 and 16 about the the Jewish opponents. In contrast to that, look at his language there in verse 17. But we, you hear his pastor's heart. We, brethren, by the way, guess how many times that little word brethren is used in this little, the, the little short five chapters of this epistle? 17 times. Paul is all about you and me being spiritual siblings, forever family in Christ, right? But we, brethren, having been, listen to the original, orphanizo, bereft, taken away, stripped like a child from, kidnapped from its parents, ripped away, forsaken, snatched from you. 
I mean, can you have a more emotional terminology? Someone who was speaking about uh, safe families, that's something very much on our hearts in our church as well, with a number of uh, children been adopted and cared for and, and trying to uh, show the mercy of Christ in the midst of the, the misery and the effects of sin in this world. Paul, as Chris Austin says, reaches for a word to sufficiently show the pain of his soul. Another writer says, in the most poignant way possible, to show his need. He wrenches the metaphor to extract the greatest emotion. He says, we were orphaned. And then keep reading, he says, in person, not in spirit. Literally, with reference to face, not heart. Excessively, we endeavored, this is the original, your faces to see with great longing. You can hear the emotion in his emphasis. We were eager. It's a, a word there that not just a desire, but we had plans. Our bags were packed. Uh, look at the text again. All the more with great desire, usually a Greek word for, uh, for uh, uh, in a negative sense and, and of sexual lust, but positively here, it's this fervent, zealous love. And Paul proved this, did he not? You've read the book of Acts. How often did he dare the dangers of ancient travel to be in person with people? I think he would have been the first to stand up in this COVID era and say, being together in person matters. <laughs> it's an acceptable risk. Yes, there are unacceptable risks in life, but there are acceptable risks. You all know this. You live this. You got married. You have children. You drive to work. You, you sit on the LA freeways. It's a death wish. <laughs> I'm more shocked every time we come back. <laughs> but he says, this is an acceptable risk. We must be together. And now he says to see your face. Three times, have you noticed in this passage? Verse, twice in verse 17, and again in chapter 3, verse 10, bookending, framing, bracketing the whole passage is this emphasis on face. And other epistles and phrases of Paul come to mind, don't they? Colossians 2, verse 1, uh, a longing for those who have not personally seen my face. He says, that's who I have a, a struggle in prayer for. Second John chapter 12. Though I have much to write you, I'd rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk. Oh, you're on mute. You're on mute. Please, no. <laughs> face to face. So that our joy may be complete. Third John 13 and 14. I had much to write to you, but I'd rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Brothers and sisters, you see something of God's evident design. Your face means your presence. If your face is absent, it's as if you're not present. It's your unique identity. It's your God-given special brand, your trademark, your signature. It's how we know it's you and not someone else. It's your fingerprint. It's your face print. You think the, uh, the, 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 the big tech doesn't know what they're doing when they, they didn't call it elbow time. They call it FaceTime. They didn't call it Thumbbook. They call it Facebook. Because <laughs> they know the face matters in God's design for the human. Look at facial recognition technology, right? Fascinating, the progress it's made in the last 50 or 60 years. All the algorithms by the millions, even discerning between identical twins, I'm told. Every day, Facebook uploads an average of 350 million new pictures tagged as to who exactly that is. I do notice sometimes with me and my sons, they get confused. I like to see they are fallible. 
Brothers and sisters, are we surprised, though, that we have seen the wholesale surrender of our culture today, of our faces to the state? Are we really surprised when our atheistic, post-Christian, secular society has decades ago already given up the bodies of babies in the womb, the, the, the dignity of the human body to sexual morality, the distinctions between men and women in fashions, everything's androgynous now, what's a male, what's a female, We've given our bodies over to all forms of skin graffiti and all wacky views of what you do with uh, 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 the deceased body of a loved one when it comes to thinking Christianly about even uh, burial and caring for loved ones. And we don't have to agree on the outworkings of it, but I found it's hard to even have a discussion about the theology of the body among Christians anymore. Maybe it's in some places, it might be obesity. It's caring for our physical health. It's dressing appropriately for the occasion. A lot of areas where Christians have stopped thinking about a theology of the body, right? Endless pagan sort of piercings and so forth. Christians don't have to agree, but we have to think with a biblical worldview, as I'm so grateful was drummed into me at this church. And when we come back to grace, it stands out. You come here on a Sunday, there's a freedom, there's a dignity, there's a beauty that is no longer found. If I can just speak frankly, after being overseas for 23 years, America is increasingly uglified and brutalized. But you come to a healthy church that stands for freedom, stands for humanness. You can still see people's faces. There's a beauty. There's, there's a, there's the, you can tell the women from the men. You can, there's an, there's, you're not afraid of Sunday dress. There's, the, there's, there's, there's men that, that's, that still look like men. And, and praise God for people saved out of the world and people saved with all kinds of whatever, piercings and tattoos and you name it. That's the grace of God. That's where we once were. But Christians shouldn't be in a rush to go back there. We want to see people discipled into holiness, into non-conformity to the world, into a biblical view of the body, of human dignity, wherever Christianity has gone. It's elevated human dignity, right? The rights of women, the protection of children. Only people who think that America is terribly racist and terribly inhumane are people who've never lived overseas. God's word rescues us from so much of this insanity. How ironic that humanism has proven to be dehumanizing, right? When you reject God, you reject man also as his image bearer. When you hate God, you hate man. When you honor God, you honor man. You know what Orwell famously, George Orwell, ominously said in his 1984 novel about the rise of tyranny and totalitarianism, Banned still in China today, I wonder why. Orwell said this, if you want a vision of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. Our elders have had to work through this. We, by the way, are much more diverse than you on a Sunday, given the South African political situation. We still have numerous people wearing their masks. They are welcome. We will not enforce or require masking or unmasking. And I don't think this issue is going away anytime soon in the Christian church. And it's a great opportunity for love and acceptance and tolerance. But just because someone might be weaker or more confused doesn't mean we don't also love them and help them think it through biblically. 
and strive for greater unity, to be of the same mind, the same judgment, as Scripture says, 1 Corinthians 1.10. <laughs> On a lighter note, Uncle Andy, Polish, South African, he um, came to me once, and he was wearing his mask. I didn't even notice. He's older, more vulnerable, not offended. Like I said, we have both on every Sunday. And he said, Pastor Tim, I just want you to know, today, the reason I wore my mask is I forgot my dentures. <laughs> so it's okay, Uncle Andy, whatever. You are welcome. <laughs> I don't have time this morning, but I leave it with you. Study a theology of the face. The word face, 850 times in the Old Testament, 77 times in the New. God cares about your face. From Genesis to Revelation, right? God breathed into the face of man life. The Bible begins. The story ends with the crowning joy of heaven as we shall see his face, right? Often in the Psalms, we pray for God's face to shine on us. When he hides his face, it's judgment. When he smiles, it's grace and peace. The lifting up of the countenance throughout Scripture. Moses, what was the sum of his rare intimacy with God in Exodus, in Numbers, in Deuteronomy? Repeatedly, he met with God face to face. But we all with unveiled faces. If you haven't seen it yet, it was Han Cho, one of your leaders, who clued me in just a couple weeks ago to the uh, formal legal rebuttal of Dr. MacArthur back in about April. And uh, it's, you, you kind of have to look it up online, but it fleshes out more in the context of the L.A. County battles that you've been having on a theology of the face and why Grace Church has also not mandated uh, protocols and, and masking. It's very helpful. I encourage you to look it up and some sobering warnings in it. True love displayed right through our faces and from the final kiss on the cheek of a loved one who has passed. Uh, there's a fascinating experiment you can look up online called the still face experiment. Two minutes, a mom with a little baby and she goes deadpan and the little six-month-old baby is within two minutes just distraught and restless until the mother goes back to a natural smile you can just physically, visibly, tangibly see the baby relax. Mom's face. God's design. Paul says, I long to see your face three times. May the Lord deliver us from a society that's increasingly reenacting the phantom of the opera in his misery. Like Muslim women, captive behind their veils. Smiling out loud, fellow citizens. Michelle gets this in the grocery stores in South Africa. Vigilanteing one another because they don't wear their mask. Famed economist George Gilder says, a nation without faces cannot be free or civilized. A nation without faces cannot even talk to one another. It's become C.S. Lewis's mythical nation of Gloam, if you know his novel, Till We Have Faces. Gloam is a barbaric, pre-Christian, defaced, and dehumanized world. I pray for my, the land of my birth here in America and for our, the land of our uh, our home and ministry and uh, our life in South Africa, then in both places the Lord would raise up courageous Christian voices and uh, godly and conservative voices who would speak up in politics, in government, and in business, in law, in education to confront the evil of lockdowns, to stand against tyranny, and to defend human dignity. Well, let's look back at our text in closing. 
as I said, a kind of a expository and topical treatment that I hope is helpful for you and definitely the journey we've been through in our church and our seminary group of churches in South Africa. Paul says, calls us to fight for face-to-face fellowship because of this godly desire. But notice also, just briefly in closing, verse 18, because of a satanic strategy, Verse 18, for we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once. You hear, the again, the reiteration, the emphasis, the earnestness, the, the love, the, the pastoral brotherly heart and passion for them. And yet Satan thwarted us because he's the adversary, right? He is the enemy of all of, of, of God and all of his purposes, right? As we see throughout the scriptures and throughout the, the almost every church in the New Testament, name a church and I'll, I'll show you where Satan tried to attack that church. From within and from without. He tried to hinder us. A military metaphor there. Break down the bridges. Obstruct the pathway, right? Listen to Spurgeon. Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It's his policy to keep Christians apart. Sound familiar? The last year, 18 months we've been through? Anything which can divide saints from one another, Satan delights in. He attaches far more importance to godly intercourse than we do. Since union is strength, Satan does his best to promote separation. Is that not 2020 and 2021 for the church around the globe? Didn't you, did you see that interview with Tucker Carlson and uh, James Coates' wife while he was in prison in Canada? And he asked a question we face a lot in South Africa. So, Pastor, is it because of uh, actual direct persecution or is it just because of uh, a government overreach? I loved what, uh, I don't even remember her name, uh, but James Coates' wife, Erin, uh, I think it was, the way she answered Tucker and, you know, national television. She says, Tucker, I don't really know, but I know behind it all is the devil, and he hates the church. (laughs) Amen, sister. (laughs) Sproul says, the church is the most important organization in the world. It's the target of every demonic, hostile attack in the universe. Yes, Jesus guaranteed the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. He did not guarantee they would not be unleashed against it. God is 100% sovereign, but we do not, therefore, become hyper-Calvinists who just passively, I've heard this too often in the last year, oh, I'm patient, I'm just waiting on God. Well, no, actually, at some point, you're waiting on Caesar and the state to give permission to be a Christian. But only God gets to finish the sentence, you may worship the lamb if. Not President so-and-so or Prime Minister so-and-so or Dr. so-and-so. King Jesus, he is the head. You see Paul's pastoral tenacity and initiative throughout this section here. My friend DeBrain, again, in that blog on disembodied Christianity, makes a great contrast. He says, most Christians today are so infected by enlightenment rationalism and contemporary technopoly. If you remember Neil Postman's uh, sobering warning a few decades ago about the, the dangers of technopoly taking over society. He says, therefore... We see the Christian faith only in informational terms, something you can download, something that goes on in the front on the stage, and whether you're actually there or whether you click on it at home, it's, it's up there. It's information instead of the biblical view, which is incarnation. The truth is embodied in persons, he says, whom we must be with and share our lives with. Worship is not what happens up front where the pulpit and the musicians sit, he says, where you just point a camera. No, images and sounds, he says, might be live, but they are not living. Humans are living. Not their letters, their phones, their radios, their screens, not the sights and sounds they produce. And worship is more than communication. It's the communion of living persons with one another. Praise God that you're here. We pray for those, even some who aren't able to be here, that the Lord bring them back as soon as possible and that you gather at every opportunity. 
Sundays and midweek. Well, third, remember, we fight Satan's attacks. We fight for funny, but yet somehow that's become acceptable now in the Christian world. Oh, yeah, I'm, I go to this church. Oh, really? Like, you actually go there? Yeah, we, you see how language is, is, is getting all confused today. But we watch the Olympics in another part of the world, and this language is the language that Paul uses here. Our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation. Who's our gold medal? He uses Olympic athletic language of prize and reward, and he also uses worshipful language here. Who is our hope? Well, yes, the Lord is our hope, but he works through people. Who is our joy? Well, yes, the joy of the Lord is my strength, but it's found through people. You, you Thessalonians, you, my brothers and sisters, I long to be with in person and to see your faces. You are our hope. You are our joy. You are our crown of exaltation. Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. One of the hardest few emails I've ever written to all my kids now, getting used to having grown-up kids out of the home, was a few months ago, I think also around January, and I said, pray for me. My heart is broken as a pastor. By taking a stand to see people's faces and being sadly one of the few churches in South Africa who refused to be agents of the state and enforce dehumanizing protocols. We're losing some of the faces, gaining lots of others, and some have come back, but some of the very faces you love and you're willing to go to jail for. By the way, not a nice, cozy, air-conditioned Canadian or American jail, by the way. South African jail, you hope you come out alive. But God gives you grace and you stand and you fight for the faces of some who turn and leave and you see the back of their head. And you just say, Lord, how long? How long? And I know that's happened to grace as well. But the Lord knows our hearts and we plead and we teach and we warn and we love and we labor for the saints. Oh, look at Paul's final point here. The final reason that we Fight for face-to-face fellowship, not only because of a godly desire, because of a satanic strategy, because of a glorious reward, but fourth and finally, because of an unbearable risk, an unbearable risk. Look at the urgent threat here. I don't know if you noticed when I read the passage, we don't have time to read it again, but in chapter 3, verse 1 through 10, count the number of times Paul says, your faith. You see, your face matters because your faith matters. I mean, I just think of the spiritual parenting that has been done even by men in this room when Harry would come some 25 plus years ago, going on 30, brother, when uh, I was there and Mark would bring you in and you'd challenge us. And Mark has been a huge mentor to Michelle and I. And uh, Nathan Boosness, by the way, I was his Bible study leader. That's my little claim to fame. (laughs) I had some tiny little role in Nathan's life. And you see this chain of of mentoring and ministry into one another's lives because of relationships, because of friendship, because of in-person, face-to-face fellowship. And five times in chapter 3, verse 1 to 10, Paul says his concern is your faith. Verse 2, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 10. Your faith close with this. My fellow pastor and fellow professor at our seminary, DeBrain, warns about the transhumanism that is redefining human life today. 
and this mind-body dualism that's been around far too long, even in the church. He says, secular culture is happy to abolish human nature. And for some time, Christians have been unsure of whether Christianity is fully human or not. Alcorn hammers this in his book on heaven, by the way, and your hopes of the life to come. He says, Debrain, when Christianity is reduced to mere information, it becomes another ghostly, disembodied religion of mere abstractions. Gladly, however, true Christianity is far from disembodied. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We're saved not only in our souls, but also in our bodies. Can you jump over to chapter 5 quickly? Look at the closing benediction. Chapter 523, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul, and that's all that matters. No, keep reading. And body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What did Job say? I know that I will see my Redeemer on this earth in my flesh, in my body. Whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection body that is promised. John Wesley said, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. May the Lord continue to give us more of his view of the church and his view of the, the body and of the priority of face-to-face fellowship in an age where it is under attack like we've never seen before. Shall we pray? Gracious Father, you know the faith of each of my brothers and sisters seated here in this room. Again, some who may not even be saved might wonder why we think these things matter so much. And they might just be happy to go downstream with the culture. We pray that they would repent, be saved today, bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior for sinners, through his perfect life and his atoning death and his triumph over the grave. We pray that they would be saved this very day and receive your love so they might understand why we love one another. We pray, O Lord, that the world would see that we are Christ's disciples and followers by our love for one another, a risk worth taking in every age, which our forefathers in the faith have gone underground and taken far greater risks. And around the world today, in China and in the Middle East, Lord, we pray for them and the far worse persecutions that they face, that you would strengthen and protect them. Oh Lord, you know the faith of each believer in this room. We pray that you would use, use these midweek Bible studies, use the launch of this new semester, use all of the, uh, that's going on at the Master's University and in the seminary and here at Grace Church and the efforts of her elders and leaders and each of the members here in this group to minister to one another's faith, to encourage one another day by day while it's still called today. And as we see the day approaching, all the more to spur one another on, to gather, to meet, to minister to one another, to find hope and joy and a crown and a gold medal in the fruit of changed lives of those that we have served and loved and discipled and mentored and prayed for and cared for. Thank you for the gift of Christian fellowship with the blood-bought people of God. In our Savior's great name we pray. Amen.